Welcome to the Cheryl Broderson Podcast, encouraging and equipping you through the study of God's Word. This is a podcast taken from the Joyful Life Bible Study at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Chapter 2 of Titus begins with a, a contrast, but as for you. Here's a contrast, and I'm going to just take a moment to remind you of the formidable task that Titus was given by Paul to do in Crete. So he was left in one of the most notoriously wicked places in the known world. If you've seen the Pirates of the Caribbean, or you've been on the ride at Disneyland, which is tamed, I want you to, that's the culture of Crete. Crete was a pirate island. It was an island of pirates and their children, so to speak. That's what it was like. It it was full of debauchery and gambling, and every vice was not only featured, but expected and exalted. It was an island for pirates, pillagers, and the promotion of sin. Perhaps you remember reading in your footnotes or your famous facts on the side, that Crete was where the Philistines came from, who had been the arch enemies of Israel. Paul uses a quote of one of their own when he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And he even calls this poet a prophet, (laughs) like, This guy was speaking for God when he said this. This is what denoted a Cretan. It was his ability to lie, and not just lie, sometimes always lying, always. Whenever a Cretan is speaking, he's lying. Evil beasts, they're beastly in their behavior. They're lazy. They're indulgent. And this is the culture that Titus was placed in And told from this culture, from these lazy gluttons and evil beasts and liars, raise up godly elders. Raise up godly older men. Raise up godly older women who will teach others. Raise up godly young women. Raise up godly young men. Show them how it's done. In other words, Titus was left in Crete to raise up a new culture in the midst of the culture that was already there. He was to raise up this culture that would sharply contrast with the Cretan culture in activity and attitude and the roles that they fulfilled. This is huge. How was Titus to accomplish such a formidable task. How is he supposed to do that? I mean, look what I've got to work with. It's like being on Chopped. You know, I'm sorry, I'm totally addicted to Chopped. And I'm like, I would never want to be a judge on Chopped. You know, you're like, oh, I'm... I get Brian to watch it sometimes. And he's like, oh, this gross, 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 you know? I'm like, look, that woman forgot the tripe. You know, like she but I don't care because it's fish. He's like, Cheryl, tripe is not fish. It's the stomach of a cow. And I'm like, oh, 
okay, gross. But you know, it's like, how are you supposed to make a delectable meal out of those basket ingredients? How are you supposed to do that? I mean, you know, who puts tuna and cranberries together? You know, how do you do that and make something delicious out of it? So with Titus, how do you take Cretans and raise up this godly culture that's zealous for good works? How are you going to do that? And Paul says to Titus in chapter 1, verse 4, My true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Then in verse 5, he says, For this reason, for this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. For this reason, not just the reason to raise up elders, but Titus, I left you there because you've got grace, you've got mercy, you've got peace. You have got all that you need through Jesus Christ our Lord and God the Father to do this formidable task. Because all you need for this is grace, mercy, and peace. You just need God. With God giving you grace, mercy, and peace, you've got it all. You don't need money. You don't need a training school. You don't need to do lobotomies on these people. You have got all you need. According to Paul in Titus 2.11, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. In other words, grace has opened the door for any person, even a Cretan, even someone raised, totally indoctrinated in the Cretan culture to be saved, to enter into the kingdom of God, to embrace a whole new culture which is the kingdom of God where grace, mercy, and peace are the order, the language, and the reign. It is of note to me that Paul just said, Titus, do it. There's no like, you can do it, you can do it. Just Titus, do it. But with Timothy, Paul was like, Timothy, you can do this. You can be strong in the grace of God. Timothy, remember the faith of Lois and Eunice. If they can do it, you can do it. Timothy, you've had the scriptures from your youth. Timothy, you've got spiritual gifts. Stir them up. You can do this. With Titus, he doesn't need any prompts. It's just like, you got this. You got this. I love that Paul doesn't, like, you know, it's so much easier to work with Titus than Timothy. Paul does whatever it takes to motivate these men, to create the culture of the kingdom of God in the culture of whether it was Ephesus or the culture of Crete. Grace makes all the difference. As I said, this probably sounds familiar, like grace changes everything, but it does. But it does. People often, in speaking about the Jesus People Movement, they, or even about Calvary Chapel, the secret of Calvary Chapel, and they say it's the Word of God. But let me tell you, there are a lot of churches that do the Word of God. A lot of churches that do the Word of God. 
But the word of God without grace is just a rule book. It becomes a burden. It becomes a duty. It can even become oppressive like the law of Moses. But when you bring grace into what, whether it's the word of God or the law, the law of Moses, you bring grace, which grace is the enabling power of God. And God then writes it on our hearts. It changes everything. It, it changes our perspective towards the word. It changes our perspective towards each other. See, without grace, we use the word of God like this measuring standard against each other. You know, don't you dare put the wise men at the crash. Don't, don't do, you know, we get like ridiculous you know, do your women's wear or do your women's? Do your women wear hats in church? We get into these weird things if we don't have grace. We start qualifying who can come into the church and not. One of the secrets that I know Sharon and, and, and Terry know this was grace. We let hippies in. We let barefoot pop smelling hippies in to the church. We open the doors to whoever would come in, and we introduce them not only to the word of God, but to the power of grace to transform them, to make them into something they were not before, because grace is God's transforming work in us. Salvation is God's work of grace. It makes us what we were not before. It translates us, as Peter says, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It turns a Cretan into a, from a Cretan into a godly man or woman. It changes. It's grace. Grace is God's transforming power, enabling us, equipping us, and encouraging us toward good works. And in Titus 2.12, Paul calls grace a teacher. Grace teaches us. And let me tell you, the best classroom to learn in is a classroom of grace. You know, because if you ask the wrong question, oh, at least you asked a question. If you fall down, oh, but you can do it. We can help you stand up. See, you know, did you ever have one of those mean teachers that, like, you didn't want to say, um, I don't get it. I had a mean teacher. I still remember her. Mrs. Tuttle, I think she's dead, so I'll say her name. But I remember, like, if you said, I don't get it, she's like, get it. Don't say get it, say understand. You didn't get it because you weren't listening. Oh, why do I teach seven-year-olds? So dumb. And you're like, oh, I'm not going to ask a question. I remember one little boy was so afraid to tell her he had to use the toilet that he just urinated in his pants. He was, we were scared of her. You were so scared of her. Nobody learned anything in that class. I, I, I came out a grade behind. It, it was so, I was so afraid. 
I remember thinking, Mrs. Hartford, you never met a nicer person in your life. I still remember her. Fourth grade, I know. My examples are like, like a decade, I mean like what, a century old. But I remember her because she was so kind. At the end of fourth grade, they called my parents in. They said, we want to skip her to sixth grade. I made up for second grade. But you know, Grace, she was the most gracious woman. Grace is an atmosphere where if you say, I don't understand, the teacher said, well, how can I help you understand? Oh, you don't understand because you were probably thinking of a bigger thought. Now let me help you with this thought. I mean, Grace is just like, oh, there's a lot of people that don't get it. But we're in this together, and I'll walk you through it. Grace is so beautiful. It's so amazing. I mean, think about it. We are sinners, and we haven't even stopped sinning. We're trying. But God says, I still absolutely adore you, and I see that you're doing better in this. I mean, isn't God so amazing that he says, I'll clean you up. I'll clean you up. Don't worry, I'll do whatever is necessary to bring you into the kingdom of God. I'll do all the cleaning. I will thoroughly purge you of your sin. Is that incredible? Oh, I'll get rid of all of that. I'll take care of that. He is so righteous, and yet he's willing to cleanse us of our sins. He's willing, he's so righteous, he's so good, and yet he's willing to make us qualify us to be his children and to be brought into the kingdom of light. That's grace. That's amazing grace. That's the secret. It's not just the word of God. It's the grace. That's why my dad wrote the book, Grace Changes Everything. Because everyone went, oh, it's the word. It's just the word. And he's like, no, grace without the word. No. Grace enables, empowers. Jesus was the word of God incarnate, but he was gracious. And he brought us this grace. We cannot forget the grace. Grace. Grace is a teacher. And it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. It teaches us, not like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. No, it's like, you don't want that. You're too good for that. Oh, you're in the kingdom of light. That's not good for you. It doesn't look that pretty on you. Don't wear that. Ungodliness and worldly lust were the norm in the Cretan culture. And, and as the, these Cretans got saved and began to say, I don't want that. I don't even like that. They began to stand you know, honestly, I remember being invited to parties, you know, in, in college and in high school, like a party. I remember having this one friend, like, oh, church is so your element, but try my element. Try a party. She really said it like that, too. And I went to the party, and I was just like, Ugh. you know, I'm getting my water out of the faucet just to make sure. I mean, there was not one thing I enjoyed about watching people get drunk. I, I ended up getting in a debate about creationism versus evolution, and I won. One, because they were drunk. Two, because they didn't know what they believed. But, you know, I've never, ever craved a party. Never. 
you know, unless it was a birthday party and there were presents and there was punch. But I've never craved those kind of parties. You know, God takes your appetite for those things away. The thing that you thought, I don't know if I can live without this. Once you come to Jesus, you're like, I can't believe I ever thought that was cool or I ever liked that. Grace makes a difference. These things make the culture of God a standout in a Cretan culture. It teaches us to live soberly. This word soberly doesn't mean, um, it does mean to not be drunk, but it means something more than that. It means not to numb yourself to what's going on. You know, sometimes we want to just numb ourselves. Have you ever had those moments where you just don't want to think and you don't want to feel because it hurts too much? Uh, Kind of like with the Ukraine, sometimes when I think about what those people are going through, I mean, it just just hurts. But Paul says to live soberly. Let it hurt. Be aware of what others are going through. Live with an awareness. Do not be numbed to the issues around you. I remember that Hudson Taylor came back to England and he said there are a hundred Chinese people dying every day without Jesus. Help me change that. Help me change that. Don't let these people go into an eternity without God. Help me change that. He he wanted the people in England to feel. And we need to feel It is so important. Some of you are feelers. There are certain personalities that feel more than other people. My mom was a feeler. I mean, she felt like, I saw hippies and I was like, hippie. She's like, oh, hippie. Why? Why are they doing that? She she had this like, why? She had to know the why. And you know, my dad's like, what? Who cares? They're rebels. Yeah, let's just go. My mom's like, no, I have to talk to one. I mean, it was like that, that feeling. She was a feeler. She felt things like five levels deeper than anybody else. And sometimes it was a little overwhelming because she was feeling. It's like, oh, great, we're in the feeling thing. You know, we're not allowed to move on because she's just got to stay here and feel it. And the next thing you know, she'd be praying out loud wherever we were. And you're like, yes, we're feeling it. And now everyone in this mall is feeling it too. She felt, and some of you are feelers. Feeling is a good thing. If you're a feeler, do not numb that feeling. I think a lot of alcoholics are alcoholics because they feel. And they don't want to feel. They want to be numb because feeling hurts sometimes. And you pay a cost for feeling. But we need the feelers in the body of Christ like the Hudson Taylors, like the Kay Smiths, so that we pray more, so that we begin to feel and begin to understand. Grace does not offer us an escape from the culture, but to make a difference within it. That's why Paul stresses that these people are to be zealous for good works. Grace teaches us how to live righteously. Remember, we talked about righteously is not moral uprightness as much as it is alignment with the Lord. 
to live in alignment. God is righteous. He lives in perfect alignment with the Holy Spirit and with Jesus. They live in perfect alignment. Grace teaches us how to live godly lives in this present age, right here, right now, even in the midst of a bunch of Cretans. It teaches us how to live. Grace changes our priorities, what we're looking to get out of life, whereas the Cretans were looking to exploit so they could indulge and enrich themselves. The kingdom of grace, the kingdom of God, is seeking to minister and to give themselves to others. Grace causes us to look forward to the glorious appearance of Jesus when he brings this kingdom worldwide to everyone. This is our blessed hope. Jesus is coming, and every man and woman will give an account to him. Grace is always reminding us of our indebtedness to Jesus because he gave himself to us and for us. Grace reminds us of the purpose of Jesus, why he came to redeem us, to buy us out from lawless deeds. We don't have to live like Cretans because Jesus has come and given us the grace that saves us, the grace that enables us and enlivens us and encourages us and equips us to live for him. He has redeemed us that he might purify for himself his own, and and there's a better translation, treasured people. Don't you just love that? He has redeemed us to create and purify for himself. Grace purifies us. We don't deserve that purifying work of grace, but he is making us his own prized possessions, zealous for good works, grace coming in, giving us this zeal. Grace pulls us out from the very dregs of society, redeems us, purifies us, and creates a new culture that lives fully aware, fully engaged, rightly aligned with God, right now, right here, lives with Jesus ruling in our hearts and fully assured of the coming of Jesus to rule and reign on the earth when Jesus sets all the wrongs to right. Grace creates the culture that has a people that is redeemed from lawless deeds, living distinctly from the culture of the world, but still in it. A special, unique people, a special, prized possession. We're a culture. Why? Why when we get saved do we just not die and go to heaven? Because God wants right now to use the church to showcase the grace of heaven, to showcase the goodness of what will be. Oh, that's why it's so important that we be graced women, that we have graced older men, 
that we have graced older women, that we have graced younger women, that we have graced younger men, that we have take this grace to the workplace. We're to show them the kingdom of God and they're to see it and say, I want in. I want in. We're to be this kingdom. In Titus 2, Paul highlights the difference grace will make in the lives of the older men, the older women, the younger women, the younger men, and in employees. Titus himself is called upon to model this grace in verses 6 through 8, to talk about this grace, to encourage this grace, and to rebuke with all authority according to the power of grace. He is not to allow anyone to disregard his message because grace is the language, the way, the power of the culture of God's kingdom and people, and it's the authority. So the effect of grace on older men. We have this saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. That's how we refer to the older men often. That's because the older you get, the harder it is to change your habits. Isn't that true? The harder it is, we get set in our ways. So imagine these older men. Having grown up in Crete, used to the ways of Crete, lying simply the way things are done, laziness, gluttony, prized. How hard would it be for an older man in that Cretan culture to learn a new way? I would say it would be impossible. What made it possible? the grace of God that has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Older men now in the church, the churches of Crete, were to be characterized by sobriety rather than drunkenness, reverence and respectfulness, not coarse, not demeaning of others, not exploitive. They were to be temperate, not excessive, not self-indulgence. Excess is what you do when you're afraid you won't get any more. When do I overeat? When I'm planning on going on a diet the next day. You know, it's like, oh, I might never have boysenberry pie again. So I will eat all this pie knowing that this might be the last meal that I get. Trust in God assures that you do not need to grab for yourself. You have a heavenly father that feeds you. Sound in faith, sure of the gospel, sure of God's reality and presence, sure that God was present. They were to be sound in love. This word is agape or agape. It's a divine love, a distinctive love, a devoted love. They were to be sound in it. They were to be established in this. And then they were to be patient. This quality of patience, as well as the love and the faith and the temperance and the reverence and the sobriety, would speak distinctly of the culture of a divine transformation. You would say, wait, how did you become this? You don't even look the same. You don't act the same. You don't talk the same. What has changed you? We had a man in Charlie in our church in England, and he was a postman. 
And one day, they said, Charlie, you're different. Why are you so different? You don't talk like you used to. You don't act like you used to. And he said, well, I'm a Christian. They said, yeah, that's part of it, but it's also the way you talk. And he's like, okay, I talk differently. And they go, no, you keep calling us guys and not geezers. What has changed? Charlie was older. He was a grandpa, but he found Jesus, and it graced him. It graced him. Older women are to be reverent in behavior, respectful behavior, behavior that can be respected. We're talking about the opposite of the golden girls. My mom hated that show. She despised and loathed that show. Whenever it would come in, she would curse it in the name of Jesus. She just hated it because she felt like it stole the reverence from age and the respect from age. Here's three women still trying to get all they can out of life. All the joy, all the, you know, indulgence, competing instead of investing, instead of sacrificing. And she said, I don't want to go to countries where this is what they think of all the women in the United States, that we're like hubba hubba. I don't want them to think that about me as an older woman. I want to be respected. I want a behavior that can be emulated. Then it says they're not to be slanders. Graced older women don't talk badly about others because they're graced. Slander is malicious talk, and it's meant to demean or cast suspicion or aspersions on someone's character. It's mean gossip. Slander is prized in our culture right now, just like it was slander, like it was prized in Crete. It's the way of politics, isn't it? Find the dirt, say the dirt on your opponent, even if it's not true. Talk about all the dirt. It's the way of the media. It's the way of many on Facebook. It's the way of YouTube. Why? Because slander gets watched. It gets followers. It is not, it is not to be the culture in the church. It is not the culture of the kingdom of God. It's not how we talk about people outside the culture, and it's definitely not how we talk about each other. In Colossians, Paul said that our speech is to be seasoned with grace. Colossians 4, 6. I think one of the issues is we as women feel powerless. You know, we, we can't just, you know, go stop. So we use our words. We use our words. When we can't change someone, we use our words. And we demean and we slander and we hurt with our words. We are to use our words to grace others, not demean others. These women are not to be given to much wine. 
It's not a prohibition against drinking alcohol, but against being under the influence of alcohol or using alcohol as an escape. Again, it's an opportunity to set an example by not indulging, by not numbing. They were to be teachers of good things. Older women have experience. They can tell you about what life was like when they were seven in second grade with a teacher named Mrs. Tuttle. Older women have wisdom and they've seen pretty much everything. Paul wants these older women to be sought after, to be sought out. I, I think of Naomi in the book of Ruth. And, and boy, isn't Naomi like a contrast from the Golden Girls? Naomi is this older woman who has been bereft of two sons. She's widowed. She's living in a culture that's not her own. But there is something so compelling about Naomi and Naomi's faith in her God that these two Moabite women say, we want to stay with you. Even though if we go with you to Israel, there's no promise of a future for us. We still are willing to go to a foreign land, to a foreign people, because of who you are and what you mean to us. We know that Orpha turns and goes back. But when Naomi says, Ruth, you go back too, she says, far be it from me. For your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. And nothing less than death will ever separate us. That's the effect, that's the effect that Naomi had on Ruth. That's the type of older woman I want to be. I want to have such a strong faith that women say, I want your faith. I want to be so loving that people say, I want to love like that. I want to be so grace that people want the grace that I have, that people want in the kingdom. You see, I want to be the United States and not Russia. I want to be the place where everyone wants in and not the place where everyone wants out. I want the kingdom of God to be the place that everybody wants in and not the place that everybody wants out. I want it to be the grace place, the graced place. This is the culture that we are to be, and this is what the older women in this culture are. Older women are to model it, encourage, and warn the younger women to love their husbands and their children by modeling it, to talk about the joy. You know, there is something about um, being married 42 years. It was just something really wonderful. Even though I'm only 41, I'm, I'm going to go to 42 in May. But there is something so like, you know, I've trained him well. The thought of remarrying is like, no, 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 I've trained this one, and I still have a few lessons left. But, you know, the thought of starting from scratch again, it's like, no, no way. It, it's, there is something so 
beautiful, so wonderful. And you know, there's a reward. I remember a young girl who was really struggling in our marriage, her marriage, not mine. She wasn't there. But in her marriage. And I remember said, you know, there was like this magic moment when we got to 10 years where we like all of a sudden were secure with each other and we knew each other. It was just like this magic 10-year mark. And then there was a magic 20-year mark where we even relaxed even more. And then there's like the 30-year mark where I stopped wearing makeup because you know, he didn't care and I didn't either. There's just this relaxed time. And, and marriage just brings in this beauty. I've got to tell you something just hilarious, though. I, I remember when um, John came over to pick up Kelsey. They were still dating. And she was wearing her Ugg boots, and she was wearing sweats and no makeup, and her hair was like in a, a ponytail off to the side. And he's like, oh, we've, we've come to this stage in our relationship where we're just relaxed with each other. I remember she laughed so hard, went upstairs, took a shower, and changed. But we show by example the joy of, of where marriage is. There is there's something wonderful about watching your children get married, but there's something even more magical about watching, you know, there's something wonderful about watching your father, your husband as a father. But there's something even more wonderful when you watch your husband as a grandfather. It's like, whoa, you're so cute, you know? There's just something amazing to that. So we're to teach the younger women, maybe even help them with their choice. Imagine him in 40 years. <laughs> the older women are to model it, encourage it, warn the younger women. The younger women become examples of grace by the way they love their husbands and children, by, by the way that they respect them, also in their discretion or the word sophron, in their wisdom or discernment or self-control, by their chaste, faithful to their husbands. I mean, think about everything you're watching on television now. If you're watching, um, you know, anything like movies, you know, everyone's unfaithful. You know, there's these torrid affairs on their husbands, or, you know, nobody's a virgin anymore. I remember being in class, and my parents had given me, in college, my sophomore year, uh, my parents had given me a ruby ring. It was a virtuous woman ring. And somebody said, oh, I love your ring. I said, oh, it's a virtuous woman ring, not even thinking about the implications of that. The whole class went silent. They're all looking at me. And I was like, uh, yeah, I got a chance to say a little bit about that. I remember in high school, um, in our criminal justice class, they said, you know, there's no virgins left. And I said, there's one, and I'm proud of it. I'm right here, and I think I've got some girlfriends I can vouch safe for. We want to be pure. We like it. We're not embarrassed about it. Oh, my goodness. To, to bring a sense of confidence and security like this is all right. Because you know what our society does now? It shames virgins, doesn't it? Shames them. Oh, you're missing out on life. Oh, no, to live chaste lives. That's, I'll tell you, that's a standout. A couple weeks later, they said something like, you know, everyone smoked pot, the whole class, almost in unison. Nope, Cheryl hasn't. It's like, you're right. <laughs> don't need it, don't want it. 
It's like, it's a standout feature. It's a feature of the kingdom of God. Our young women look different. They're blessed. They're honored because they're chaste. Are we honoring chastity in our culture? Are we saying, you know, I'm so proud of you that you're a single woman and you live a chaste life? I'm so proud of you. Are we honoring the single women, the divorced women that are chaste? We should be. That's what we should be. The widows in this kingdom of grace, this kingdom of God. There is honor. We look differently. And this will, boy, will this make us stand out. Homemakers. And this actually means making the house a home, a pleasant place. This speaks of contentment, not seeking the next best thing. Good, this is the word, the Greek word agathos, that we get the, word, the name agatha from. And it means beneficial or a blessing, that the young women would be a beneficial, a blessing, submissive to their own husbands or obedient, cooperative. They, they work as a team. It speaks of cooperation. The younger women will either bring credence and glory, make people want into the kingdom of God, or it will bring disrepute, like that kingdom where they study the word of God. They're no different than we are. It's a choice. It's an opportunity or it's a curse. Younger women are not to seek to please themselves, but to please God. And in doing so, it has a wonderful opportunity to showcase the grace, the power, and the reality of the kingdom of God, this culture in our culture. The young men are to be sober-minded or, again, aware. I, th I think of sober-minded, I think of 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking to devour. In 1 John, John said, I commend you young men because you are strong and you have overcome the evil one. Young men are to be sober, realize there is warfare going on. And I am not resisting so much my flesh as I am resisting the wiles of the devil who wants to take me down and disqualify me. Titus himself was to be a model or show a pattern of the power of grace. Don't you love it? Do you like my outfit? It's grace. Let me show you all the facets of grace. We're to model grace. We're to show it off. We're to set a standard. Who wore it better? Grace. In verses 7 through 8, the template of grace is a pattern of good works. Show others how it's done, what it looks like. Integrity in doctrine. Show them what it is to have integrity in doctrine. Not only an adherence to God's word, but living it out. In other words, it's the opposite of do what I say, don't do what I do. It's do what I say and what I do. Paul said, emulate me even as I emulate Jesus Christ. Reverence or respectful attitudes towards the Lord, towards the word, towards the older men, towards the older women, towards the younger women, towards the young men, towards the servants. 
show reverence, show respect. And then it says incorruptibility, resistance to culture's pressures. A Romans 12.2, do not be conformed or pressed into the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove or approve the good and the excellent will of God. In other words, we are transformed that we might show what the excellent will of God is, how great it is to be saved. How, you know, I think of that song, even though it's not Christian, but how great it is to be loved by you. I mean, that's our song. We're graced. How great it is to be loved by God. How great. How great. He says, incorruptibility in speech so that onlookers, the watchers, will have nothing evil to say of you. I think of Daniel 6. Again, Daniel. They couldn't find any cause against Daniel when they wanted to take Daniel down from his position of influence, they couldn't find anything, and they had to do it according to his relationship with God. They had to find fault with Judaism, with how Daniel worshiped the Lord to find fault with Daniel. Wouldn't that be great? If, if they had to find fault with us, like, well, you pray. It's like, oh, yeah, I do. Oh, you read your Bible. Oh, yes, I... Wouldn't that be great if that's all they could say against us? Well, you love too much. You're so nice to everybody. Wouldn't that be great? You're just so loving. You're like, okay. Oh, if that would be it. That's all they could say. He says servants, which is equivalent to employees, verses 9 and 10. In the workplace, make a difference by the way you obey orders. Think of Daniel in the culture of Babylon or the culture of uh, the Medes and Persians. He was outstanding. They all noted that he had an excellent spirit in him. He obeyed orders. He cooperated, and yet he was undefiled and served the Lord. Do your job well. Don't challenge or talk back. Honesty, don't still or pilfer. Pilfer, the, the word used for pilfer, means to actually hold back. It means to take little amounts for yourself. Fidelity, faithful to the employee, employer and the company. You do what you say you're going to do. You show up for work when you say you're going to show up for work. Employees at work, it's an opportunity to adorn or make the gospel of Jesus so attractive that people want to know. The workplace is an opportunity to show the reality of the kingdom of God, the culture of the kingdom of God in the culture of Crete. The Christian culture is not an isolated or exclusive culture. It's a culture of grace in a culture of corruption. It is by being among this culture that we have opportunity, that we can showcase the attributes the beauty, the joy, the glory of the kingdom that is coming with Jesus Christ. We are to be a culture, in a culture, that is attractive by a respect for the Lord Jesus Christ, 
the word of Jesus Christ. Every person, regardless of age or status or ethnicity, we are not called to a list of rules. We are called to be graced and the graced by God. We are called to the people that are redeemed by Jesus Christ, purged from our sin by Jesus Christ, who are God's own treasured possession, zealous for good works. It's not something that we strive for to obtain, but it is something that we are becoming as we let God's grace flow more and more into us and on us. As we let him have his will and his way, and we let him pour into us of himself, we become the culture of grace in the culture of corruption, the culture of life in a culture of death, the culture of truth in the culture of lies, the culture of hope in a culture of disappointment, the culture of love in a culture of hate, the culture of respect in a culture of slander, the culture of kindness in a culture of exploitation, the culture of good works in a culture of self-indulgence. We are the kingdom of God in the kingdom of darkness. But very, very soon, soon and very soon, our Jesus is coming and he will bring the culture of the kingdom of God to every man and woman, to all of creation on earth. And that is our blessed hope. That is what we are looking for forward to. So until that time, let's allow God to grace us and to pour into us his great grace that we together can show the world the culture of grace, the kingdom of God in the culture of Crete. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. In fact, stand up. I want you to if you will, we'll all close our eyes. Let's hold out our arms and say, Father, again, in Jesus' name, we thank you for purging us of our sins. We thank you that you called us, that you have graced us. But, Father, in response to your great grace, Father, we understand that you sent Jesus to redeem us, to buy us for your kingdom, to buy us, to purchase us, that we might be your own treasured people, that we might be a people that is zealous for good works. So we ask in response that you would pour more grace into us. Father, that is what we need, more and more and more grace. So we ask for that great grace, which is you yourself, to take greater possession of us. Come until we leak grace from every pore. In Jesus' name, amen.